0: This is Tailgate Till May, your place for year-round college sports talk. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm excited to be back for another episode to talk about, well, what else but college sports. The Final Four is done. College basketball season is over, but the off season is just heating up. There is more off season news than ever in the world of college basketball. I'm excited to get into that. I'm excited to get into some big administrative news in the Big Ten with the Big Ten naming a new con- commissioner, Tony Petiti. So I'll definitely get into that, and then we'll get back into football. You know, over the past couple months, been really laser focused on college basketball. What else? am I going to focus on in February and March? But the football season never sleeps. There's a lot of football news going on. We're deep in the midst of spring practice. We have spring games going on. And I want to get back into some of those conference reviews that I I did, the Big 12 one, earlier in February. We'll dive back into those over the next couple weeks and start looking ahead to next college football season. I have a great show planned for you today. Excited to dive into it. But first, a reminder, Subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. Subscribing to the show and leaving a five-star review or a comment and a comment is the best way you can help the show. Another great way to help the show, if you like what you hear, is to share it with a friend. Share it with a friend who also loves college sports. Tell them this is the place we talk about college sports year-round. There's no off-season here. There's always something to talk about college sports-wise, and I'm excited to get into it today. So let's start with that big news of the week, and that is the Big Ten finally naming a replacement for Commissioner Kevin Warren, and the replacement is Tony Petiti, a guy who is an outsider in some sense, at least in the sense that he's not an athletic director, he's not a university president, he hasn't worked for a university in its athletics department, but he is a guy who is very familiar with the world of sports and familiar with college football as well. He's probably most known at this point for working as the COO of Major League Baseball, essentially second in command to to Rob Manfred. But he is also a guy who has extensive experience in media. He worked for MLB Network. He's worked for ABC Sports. He worked for CBS Sports. And as far as his college sports ties, he had an integral role in really creating the BCS. That's kind of The top of his college sports resume there. So he is an outsider in the sense he hasn't worked for an athletics department, but he is not an outsider in the sense that he is very familiar with the world of sports, with the world of sports media. And really, at this point, I don't know that there is much more important if you are a conference commissioner than being able to handle those media rights deals. But look, when we talk about commissioners, these are at the heart these are these are business guys, these are executives, and I don't have tape of Tony Petiti. I can't turn on the game film and say Tony Petiti does this well. Tony Petiti needs to work on that like we can with a football or a basketball game, so I'm not going to try to sit here and pretend this is what Tony Petiti is going to do well for the big Ten. This is what uh, Tony Petiti might not you know might need to work on as he goes into the big 10 commissioner role i can't do that because i don't know the guy i haven't worked with the guy there's no game film on him where i can do that so what i want to do instead today is i want to tell you where if i was tony petiti where would i focus my attention and i think this week we we've heard a lot about what is most important And what a lot of folks keep coming back to is integrating UCLA and USC into the conference is the most important thing that Tony Petiti can do. Kevin Warren made this big move to expand West, but he didn't have to deal with any of the operational aspects of it. He signed the deal, but he is not the one that's dealing with actually integrating them. That's dealing with all of the the operational, the logistics, logistical aspects of incorporating two teams in L.A. into a league that is widely based in the Midwest and has expanded east a bit as well with Rutgers, Maryland, and, of course, Penn State before them. So I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that is the most important thing Tony Petiti can focus on. So what does that look like? What does it look like to properly integrate UCLA and USC into a conference. Uh, For me, it's kind of a feeling. You need to make this feel like a conference. You need to make UCLA and USC feel like part of the conference. You need to make them feel as though they are included in the conference. But maybe just as importantly, you need to make Iowa fans, Nebraska fans, Ohio State fans, Michigan fans, feel like UCLA and USC are really a part of this conference. Because at the end of the day, being in a conference means being part of something larger than your institution, larger than your team if you're a fan. It it, it feels like you are part of something that's meaningful. In a lot of ways that's because you have shared history, you ha- have uh maybe regional commonality. Well, look The Big Ten does not have that with USC and UCLA. About the only commonality between USC, UCLA, and the rest of the Big Ten is maybe a shared affinity for the Rose Bowl, maybe some Rose Bowl matchups over the years, but that's about it. So for me, Tony Petiti, if I were Tony Petiti, I would focus on not only making USC and UCLA feel like they are part of the league, but making sure the other schools feel like ucla and usc are part of this league part of this community part of this thing that is larger than an individual institution so what does that look like how do you go about doing that well for me i think the key to the whole thing is scheduling and how you schedule with football probably being the most important and look football and basketball uh, football is what drives this thing. Basketball is secondary, but football is why U- UCLA and USC are in this conference. So let's start with football scheduling. And I think the answer here is is very simple. I think the answer here is to go away from divisions, which is something that we're seeing a lot of leagues do as they grow and expand. And with the Big Ten, now at 16 teams, I think it's the right move, the necessary move, To make this feel like a true conference where you are playing everybody in the league and not just two separate halves where, yeah, you might play Wisconsin every six years because they're not in your division. I don't think that's the way you create this feeling of community. You create this feeling of you know, being part of something is by having teams that don't play each other very often. So to me, the way to do this is to go to a pod system where you have four pods of four teams. This is not new. This is not original to me. It has become very popular over the past few years. The first person I ever heard talk about pods was Bill Connolly. So I want to give credit to him uh, of ESPN. He's been pushing the pod system for years, and I think it's a great idea. And the way it would work is you'd have these four pods of four teams um and you would as let's take Maryland for example let's say Maryland was in a pod with Rutgers Purdue and Indiana Maryland would play Rutgers Purdue and Indiana every year they'd play those other three teams in their pod every year and then they would play two teams from the other three pods in a given year so that gives you your 9 game schedule you play 3 from your own pod and then 6 from the other 3 pods. And what this allows you to do, it's very easy. The next year, if you go kind of a rolling two-year period, the next year you play the other 6 teams from the other pods that you didn't play that you didn't play this year. So that means over a two-year period, every team in the Big 10 could play every other team and there are instances, for example, like Maryland and Nebraska. I have no recollection of a Maryland-Nebraska football game. They don't stick out in my memory at all. And that's because they've only happened twice in the nine years that Maryland has been in the Big Ten. If you went to a pod system, that would never happen again. You would Maryland and Nebraska would play every two years because they're in separate pods and they're going to play every two years. It's also, with the pod system, a great way to maintain those traditional rivalries, which the Big Ten has so many of by putting some of those teams in a pod together. And then over a four-year period, every, other, every team in the league would play every other team home and away at least once. That is how you build a cohesive conference. That is how you build rivalries across the conference when you are playing frequently, there are, there are reasons that divisions work and divisions are helpful. But if you really want to make a league where you feel like it's a, it's a truly a cohesive league and there's an opportunity to build rivalries and, and make everybody feel like they are part of the league, you got to let all the teams play each other frequently. That's the most important thing here to me, and I think the pod system handles that really well where you are playing every team in the league over a two-year period, and you're playing every team in the league home and away at least once. So let's say you're a guy who goes to Iowa to play football. Under this pod system, over the course of your career, you are guaranteed to go out to the Coliseum and play USC at least once. To go to the horseshoe and play Ohio State there at least once. To go to the big house and play there. It's not just great for players who have that opportunity. It's great for fans, too. I mean, I remember this is not a Big Ten example. This is an SEC example. But I remember when I was living in Atlanta, there was a regular season game between Georgia and Alabama. And I believe it was 2015, Alabama was coming to Athens, Georgia. And that was the first time since 2008 that Alabama had been to Athens. And when you have cultures like you do in the SEC and the Big Ten, where college football is such an important part of life, where you have fans who travel every weekend to games home and away, where it's part of the fun is traveling to different stadiums, traveling to different campuses, experiencing what it's like there, it, there was so much excitement about the fact that Alabama was actually coming to Athens and that Alabama fans were excited to go to Athens for the first time in, you know, nearly 10 years, almost a decade, that it just makes sense to allow these opportunities to happen more often. I guarantee you there are Iowa fans, there are Nebraska fans, there are Penn State fans who would love to go out to the Coliseum, to go see the Coliseum, to go play UCLA In the Rose Bowl. And I mean, I used that Maryland-Nebraska example earlier, but as a Maryland fan, I would love to go to Nebraska and see one of the greatest atmospheres in college football. Uh, Haven't got that chance a whole lot. The pod system would fix that, and I think would go a long way towards making UCLA and USC feel like they are part of the conference. It would also go a long way towards developing rivalries with those teams with the rest of the league. You can't develop rivalries if you don't play games. And you, d- you never know. You never know which teams are going to develop rivalries because so much of what makes good rivalries is what happens on the field. Yes, we have these historic rivalries, but to me, those kind of rivalries lose their luster unless you have exciting things happening on the field. And if USC and Penn State are able to play, at least are able to play every other year, and they maybe have some instant classics, and that could develop into a rivalry. You just don't know which games might develop into a rivalry, but if you don't give these teams an opportunity, you're never going to find out. So to me, that football scheduling... is one of the most important things that Tony Petiti could do to integrate UCLA and USC and make them feel like part of the league. Basketball is not so different from what the Big Ten already does. Currently, uh, in the Big Ten, a a given team plays uh, seven other teams in the league, both home and away, and then they play the other six teams once. Uh, So you play all every other team in a given year, you play just over half the league home and away, and then just under half the league just once. And I think what I would recommend is I would do something very similar. I would play five teams. I would play five teams, uh, both home and away, which gives you 10 games. And then I play the other 10 teams once. And, you know, I don't think there's any 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 perfect solution for basketball. I don't love this nearly as much as I do uh, as I do pods for football. But I think it's important that you play everybody at least once in a given year. I think for basketball, what will be very important is the scheduling to make sure that the L.A. schools are not at a disadvantage where they are flying to Maryland on a Wednesday night and then flying back to LA for a Saturday afternoon game. I think that is what that is what they're really going to have to figure out at the Big 10 office is how to how to best manage that travel. And I think the Pac-12 actually has a really good setup right now where they use this kind of Thursday, Saturday model where, you know, uh, if a school is traveling, they'll go and play Colorado on a Thursday and Utah on a Saturday, Arizona on a Thursday, Arizona State on a Saturday, USC on a Thursday, uh, UCLA on a Saturday. I think that works really well for limiting the travel, and I think that's something that the Big Ten should definitely look into. Uh, as far as making sure that nobody is at a competitive advantage or disadvantage just based on, you know, where they are. And that we're limiting travel. We're making it as efficient as possible uh, because that kind of travel can really wear teams down over the course of, of a given season. But getting back to the actual schedule itself uh, here, and you know, using that, that method where you play five teams home and away, in a season and the other 10 teams once. I think this is also a very simple system for ensuring that you play everybody as much as possible, because what you could easily do here is you could, you could give every team in the league a permanent rival. You give them a permanent rival that they're going to play home and away every single year. And I think it's pretty easy to come up with this list. There's a few here that are a little questionable, but I think this list is fairly easy. These eight permanent rivals you'd have Indiana, Purdue, UCLA, USC, Illinois, Northwestern, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, Penn State, Rutgers, Ohio State, and Michigan, and then Michigan State and Maryland. And I think that is the one that is probably the most questionable. And there, you might have some Michigan State fans out there who want Michigan but I think that Michigan State and Maryland matchup makes a lot of sense given that these are two of the schools in this league that value basketball most. Uh, They've had some really good matchups against each other over the years. They've had good postseason matchups against each other when maryland was in the acc and michigan state was in the big 10 there's a hist- there's enough of a history there and these are two teams that are typically very competitive in the sport that i think that makes sense and you know i'd love to hear from michigan state fans how do you feel about that would you be okay with that i think maryland fans would absolutely be fine with that given the fact that there's really no true geographic rival Uh, Maryland fans consider themselves above Rutgers in basketball. They consider themselves above Penn State in basketball, despite the lack of success against Penn State over the last few years. I think Maryland fans would be ecstatic about that. I, I bet there's a good number of Michigan State fans who would prefer Michigan, but I think this really makes sense from a whole league perspective. So you give every team a permanent rival. They play them home and away every year, no matter what. So then to set up the rest of the schedule, you get that one permanent rival, and then you have four other teams in a given year that you'll play both home and away. You'll have 10 teams that you play half on the road, half at home. The easiest way to do this the following year is you just switch. You keep those same five teams that you're playing home and away, but the teams that you played once on the road, this year, you play at home, and vice versa. So, over again a two year period, you will have played every team in the league. And then, to continue making sure that you know you're getting home games and road games against the majority of the league, what you could do in the third year of this is you switch out those five teams that you're playing home and away. So you'd keep your permanent rival, but you the other four teams that the previous two years, you played both home and away, they would go into the one-time-a-year bucket you know, for this next two years. you take those 10 teams, those 10 schools, that you only played either at home or on the road, you'd put four of them into the home-and-away bucket, and you'd do this rotation. So over a four-year period, you would have played your permanent rival Four times on the road, four times at home. You would have had eight teams that you played three times on the road and three times at home. And then there would be six teams where you've played twice on the road and twice at home. So, again, let's say you are a guy who goes to Iowa to play basketball. You will have been everywhere in the Big Ten at least twice. Everybody would have come and played you in Iowa City at least twice. And obviously that goes the same for fans, but I like to bring up the player perspective because if you are a player in this league, you want to have those experiences. So that's how I would do the basketball scheduling as well. And I think for me, that is the most, the scheduling there is the most important thing with incorporating USC and UCLA and really making them feel part of the league, uh, making them feel included, but also making the other fan bases in the conference feel like they are part of the league. Some of the other things that I think you can do is take advantage of the fact that these two schools are in LA, that people want to go to LA incorporate them into the big 10 basketball tournament rotation. You know, maybe it's now that this is a coast to coast league. Maybe it's something like Indianapolis, Chicago, LA, and Brooklyn on a rotating basis every four years, uh, I think there are some questions about how a 16 team Big 10 basketball tournament works that I'd like to get into at some point, not today, but I I want to put a, I want to think about that one uh, and think about the best way to do that because you know if you go to a full 16 team bracket you are now asking your conf- your number 1 seed if you go to a full 16 team bracket 1 versus 16 on day one and so on down the line, you are asking your number one seed to win four games to win your conference tournament. And I'm not sure that is the best idea. So I want to get back to that. But as far as, you know, where you play the tournament, I think LA should be included. People want to go to LA. I think that the Rose Bowl must be included in the Big Ten Championship game rotation. It's been Indianapolis. It's been a great destination. But you know what? I think there are a lot of people in the Midwest who would rather go to the Rose Bowl for a Big Ten championship game than to Indianapolis. And I know there are some challenges there where it's a, you know sometimes short timing. You, know, you don't have a lot of time to, to get a flight, to plan it out. But there is so much history between the Rose Bowl and the Big Ten that I think it makes sense for this to happen at some point because who knows how long the Rose bowl is going to exist as it currently exists with the expanded playoff and everything coming down, down the pipeline in college football. I think this is a really good opportunity to continue some sort of Rose bowl tradition, without maybe it being the actual New Year's Day Rose Bowl. I think a good start for this, though, is to incorporate the Rose Bowl into a rotation with Indianapolis for the Big Ten championship game. And again, take advantage of the fact people want to go to L.A. It's a destination. It has great weather. It's by the beach. Uh, There's palm trees everywhere. Everybody loves going to Southern California. Take advantage of that. Same thing for baseball how can we use Southern California? How can the big 10 use Southern California to its advantage for baseball and softball, where let's just look at, if you look at the rankings, the teams that play in warm weather have a huge advantage. Can you do something there where, you know, you go and play early season conference games in LA and uh, take advantage of the fact that it has great weather. But those are some of the ways that I would include the LA schools, how we're, how I view a properly integrate, integrated USC and UCLA into this conference. No matter what, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen instantly. It's not going to take. It's going to take time. Maryland has been this. This will be Maryland's tenth football season in the league. And it's really, for me, only in the past couple years where Maryland has truly started to feel like part of the league. I think some of these suggestions with the scheduling can make that happen sooner for USC and UCLA. But it is going to take time. UCLA fans are going to miss that basketball matchup with Arizona. They just are. I can tell you from experience. Maryland fans desperately miss some of those old rivalries. But the the old ACC, as Maryland fans knew it, as I knew it, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. And I'm happy at this point that Maryland is in the Big Ten, and I don't need to go down this whole road right now, but I am happy Maryland's in the Big Ten. I feel like it's a better fit for Maryland at this point in terms of, um, in terms of just the way college sports is going and the way the ACC expanded. I don't think ACC expansion benefited maryland in in any real way i think it only detracted from the experience that maryland was having in the acc i think it is better from a maryland fan perspective i would rather see maryland go to a packed carver hawkeye on a wednesday night even though it's further away than you know what, it's not even further away in this example that I'm going to use, then go to a Miami, then play Miami in basketball. Miami team that just went to the Final Four, that's very good, but the atmosphere is just not there because for Miami, basketball is not a super important part of their culture, where for Iowa fans, it is. Um, So just as an aside, it's going to take time. I think USC and UCLA will be happy with this. The fans will be happy with it over time but it's going to take time that history doesn't dissipate overnight you don't forget those big games those big rivalries and for i said in the past two to three years i've really started to feel like maryland's part of the league because it's now maryland has history with these teams you know you can say if you talk about maryland michigan state michigan state you're like oh that's the maryland maryland had the the mellow trimble shot against michigan state that was his last home game at maryland hit a buzzer beater to beat michigan state or you know, in a couple years, Maryland fans will be saying, "Oh yeah, Purdue's coming to town." Man, remember that game they beat Zach E. Eat- they beat Purdue and Zach Eady when Purdue was number one in Willard's first year. That's the kind of stuff that builds tradition, that builds rivalries. And I think the more you, the more opportunity you give these LA teams to play the other teams in the league, the quicker that will happen. It might not take them nine years to do it. They might be able to do it in five years. So that is my advice to Tony Petiti. If you'd like to take it, uh that is the best I can offer, like I said, I wanted to look more at what would I do if I was Tony Petiti, What do I think is important? What does this look like? because I can't break down the film on Tony Tony Petiti. It doesn't exist. He is coming into a he's coming into this league at a very interesting time, and I wish him the best of luck. That is my advice on how I would schedule to incorporate USC and UCLA into this league. Okay, let's get into some college basketball because the Final Four just ended a couple weeks ago. UConn was crowned national champion, but the offseason is off to quite a start here. So I want to talk about some teams that have really caught my eye uh, in a positive way in this college basketball offseason. And there has been so much movement on the college basketball front. There are so many guys in the transfer portal. At one point, 20% of players on scholarship were in the transfer portal. That is an unbelievable amount of movement. But this first team that I want to talk about is a team that's getting a lot of guys back. Who, is not, who are not losing people to the transfer portal, a ton of important pieces to the transfer portal, or necessarily gaining a ton of pieces at the moment through the portal either. And that team is Michigan State. Michigan State got some big news in that they will get Tyson Walker and Malik Hill back for the upcoming season. And I think with those additions or, I guess, retentions, I think Michigan State is clearly going to be a top 10 team in the year ahead uh i gotta think about this one a little bit more but i i would say my gut right now is that a.j hogart and tyson walker is the best backcourt in the big 10 maybe i'm missing something somebody obvious let me know if i am but i think as a duo as a backcourt they are the best backcourt in the big 10 and then you add to a team that went to the Sweet 16. Really, the only guy there that's super important they're going to lose is Joey Hauser off this team. Uh, No word on Jaden Akins yet, who played a pretty important role on on last year's squad, just a sophomore. So I'm going to make the assumption for now that he's coming back. Uh, So it's really Joey Hauser is who they lose. But from a recruiting standpoint, they are going to add a ton of talent not through the transfer portal, but through traditional high school recruiting. They add Xavier Booker, the number eight player in the country, a 6'10 center from Indianapolis, and they add Jeremy Fears, a six-foot point guard, the number 24 player in the country. So you take what I just said I think is the best backcourt in the Big Ten, you add Jeremy Fears to it, a really highly rated guy, and I think you have quite a team there they also have Cohen Carr coming in the number 53 player according to 24 7 sports composite ratings I think that's the best thing to look at when you're looking at uh, recruiting rankings because it takes into account a bunch of the different ratings across the internet so Michigan State a very good class coming in and I think if you look at recent college basketball I mean just look this year at UConn the best way to go far to be successful to get a top seed to go to a final four to win a national championship is to return guys and supplement your returning squad with some high impact guys, whether it's through freshmen coming up from high school or via the transfer portal, Tom Izzo, not a big transfer portal guy. Uh, He is however, a great high school recruiter. And the way he is choosing to do this is to supplement his roster to get difference makers through traditional high school recruiting, which is still a great way to do it. So I think Michigan State has a really nice recipe of experience, talented newcomers, where they can be a top 10, top five team this year, and maybe they finally break that streak, become the first Big Ten team to win a national championship since, well, they did it back in 2000. So Michigan State, a team that I, have, I think has had a great offseason so far. Duke. Another team that is a great, has had a great offseason, mostly because of who they return and who they are adding, uh, not via the portal, but via high school re- re- uh, recruiting. So Duke returns, Mark Mitchell, Tyrese Proctor, and Kyle Filipowski. They are all back, and it's possible that their point guard, Jeremy Roach, may return as well. Roach, a, a critical part of last year's team, has declared for the draft. But has still maintained his eligibility to come back, so it is possible that he could come back. Those are huge parts of a team that was extraordinarily good down the stretch last year since February first. And you guys know I love to look at these Bart Torvik rankings on various time frames since February first. Uh, so over Duke's last fourteen games of the year, they were eleven and three, and they were number nine. Just behind San Diego State, who finished, who was number eight over this time frame in the Bart Torvik rankings. They had the number nine defense in the country over this period of time. And they bring back three critical players from that team. I thought Kyle Filipowski was the best player on that team. They can potentially bring back Jeremy Roach if he returns. I mean, I think if if Jeremy Roach returns, I will say, I think I would have them as the number one team in the country, given the way they finish the year and what they bring back. I think they're a little bit the opposite of North Carolina this year, where North Carolina really struggled through most of the season and had a great tournament run, went to the final four. Duke played really well for basically the last six weeks of the season, but then they ran into that Tennessee team that just out-physicaled them. And I think people will you know, forget a little bit about what they accomplished in winning the ACC tournament and how they played down the stretch because of that loss to Tennessee, where it looked like the bracket was clearing up a little bit for them to potentially make a run. I'm somebody who picked them to go to the Final Four. I thought it was there for them as well. Uh, But this is a talented Duke roster. They bring a lot back. And I haven't even got to the fact that they will bring in four top 20 players in this class of 2023 so they will have four freshmen in the top 20 that they are adding to this already extraordinarily talented roster and you know when i talk about the guys who they return Philipowski, mitchell and proctor Philipowski, the previous year class of 2022 the number four player in the country mark mitchell mitchell the number 20 player in the country tyrese proctor the number 27 player in the country now with a year under their belt so you talk about bringing back a roster that's played together letting them get another year of experience and then supplementing it with even more talent that's exactly what Duke is doing I don't know if there is anybody that's had a better offseason thus far than the Duke Blue Devils the last team I want to call out here is Houston. So Houston obviously fell short in the tournament. They had high expectations. National Championship hopes was not able to get it done. And they lose Marcus Sasser, who was the American Athletic Conference Player of the Year last year and their best player. But what do they do? They go out and they replace the loss of Marcus Sasser, and they also replace the the loss of uh, Tremont Mark, who... Where is Tremont Mark transferring to Arkansas? He's leaving for Arkansas. They replace those two guys with LJ Cryer from Baylor, a fantastic three-point shooter, one, uh, part of that three-headed monster of Baylor guards, uh, a third-team-all Big Ten guy. They, they add him, and then they also add Damian Dunn, a third-team-all conference guy from Temple, who Kelvin Sampson saw play uh, a few times over the course of his career. So, I mean, you got to trust the scout on that from Kelvin Sampson. If Kelvin Sampson has taken a guy that he played against in conference, I'm trusting that he thinks he will fit very well on this team. So, I thought they did a fantastic job of after a disappointing season where they were really at the top of the country all year and didn't have the tournament run they they would like, they went out and replaced their losses Um, with some really nice additions. I think LJ Cryer is going to be huge for them. I love the fact that they add more three-point shooting. That's been the thing with Houston. That really has been the thing for me with Houston is their three-point shooting and their inability to score at times. So I love that addition of LJ Cryer. I love that they're going into the Big 12, taking LJ Cryer from their new Big 12 rival, Baylor. Uh, Great offseason so far for the Houston Cougars. Okay, that's the basketball talk for today. Want to finish things up with some football, and we are going to get back into our football season in reviews, football 2022 season recaps, and then you know start to look ahead a little bit. So the way I did this with the Big 12 is I kind of divided the teams in the league into various categories based on how I think their fa- the fans and the team is feeling after the 2022 season. And I have, let's see, I have five different categories or four different categories here. And uh, I want to start with the teams that I think are just satisfied with their 2022 season. And there's only two of them. I think Maryland and Illinois are the fan bases that are satisfied with just how things went in 2022. Let's start with Illinois. Illinois goes eight and four. They lose a bowl game to Mississippi State. The Relaya Quest Bowl. That's the bowl game in Tampa. It's formerly been known by a bunch of things. I think most recently it was the I think most recently the Outback Bowl. Uh, let's see. I, I think most recently that's the the Outback Bowl. Yeah, that's that's what you probably traditionally know as the Outback Bowl. Now the Role Quest Bowl. Um, and that's an unbelievable year for Illinois. They really feel like they've got things going in the right direction under Brett Bielema. The story of the year, when you think about this Illinois team, was the defense. This defense finished number two nationally in Bill Connolly's defensive SP plus rankings. Uh, It was a great defensive team. You didn't want to play them. And they went out and they finished with eight wins. And at Illinois, that is a fantastic season. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I think Maryland is the other program that feels that this way leaving the season. Maryland has been on this steady trajectory where this year they won seven they won seven games in the regular season. They won a bowl game to get to eight and five the year before that. They were six and six, won a bowl game to get to seven and six. And now they return to Leah Tungavailoa for a final season. And he comes into this year, this 2022 or 2023 season, rather, as one of the best quarterbacks in the league. He's a guy that was second team all Big Ten last year, just behind C.J. Stroud, who was on a level of his own. And I think it's realistic. You can realistically have a conversation about whether Maryland has the best quarterback in the league entering 2023. And I think that's something that any Maryland fan anywhere would take an eight win season, uh, bringing back a quarterback who you could realistically say maybe the best quarterback in the league. I think Maryland fans are ecstatic about that. Uh, and I think Maryland fans are generally satisfied with that. The next group I want to talk about is, I'm calling it disappointed with the results, but excited for the future. And I think these first two I want to lump together, and they're pretty obvious why. Pretty obvious why. It's Nebraska and Wisconsin. And Nebraska, you know, they've had nothing but disappointment. They had nothing but disappointment in the Scott Frost era. And they fired Scott Frost mid-season last year. They finished the year four and eight. It was nowhere near you know, what they expected from his tenure at Nebraska. They thought they were going to bring him back. They thought they were going to start winning national championships again, or at least going to bowl games again. Scott Frost never made a bowl game at Nebraska, but now they bring in Matt Rule, who has said and done all the right things since arriving in Lincoln And, you know, given his track record, he just feels like a guy that is going to turn that program around. So I think disappointed with the year, but excited for what lies ahead. Wisconsin, I'm going to I'm going to lump with Nebraska. And that's a little more complicated because Wisconsin came into last season as the heavy favorite to win the Big Ten West. They received 31 first place votes to Iowa's three to Minnesota's two the heavy favorite to go win the big 10 West. And what they did was they went out, they finished the year seven and six, they finished four and five in the big 10. They fell short of that big 10 championship game. And Paul Christ was fired mid season. And you know, what makes that more complicated was the fact that he had had a lot of success there. It's not like a Scott Frost situation where, you know, he didn't have any success. I mean, Things had fallen off a little bit there, but in 2016, 2017, and 2019, they went to the Big Ten Championship game. They went to the Cotton Bowl, the Orange Bowl, and Rose Bowl in those years. The the two years in 2020 and 2021 were not quite as good, um, but still, there had been a history of success there under Paul Crist. Then Jim Leonard, defensive coordinator... And former Badger, Jim Leonard, takes over. And you kind of assume that he was going to get the job. He doesn't get the job. And they go ahead and they go out and they hire Cincinnati's Luke Fickle. And I think there was some consternation among the fan base. Like, was this really the right thing to do? Should we just hire Jim Leonard? And I think there's still some that that probably are asking that question. But you cannot argue with Luke Fickle's track record. To me, that was a big-time hire. Uh, it sent the message that, Wisconsin is serious about competing at the highest levels of college football, competing at the highest levels of the Big Ten, competing with Michigan, competing with Ohio State, and really making themselves a player when this college ball playoff expands to go out and make it that 12-team field on a consistent basis. So I think for Wisconsin fans, although some might not love the way it ended for Paul Christ, who was a Badger, a Badger quarterback for Jim Leonard, who, great defensive coordinator, a former Badger, kind of the assumed heir to the Wisconsin head coaching throne. You can't argue with a Luke Fickle. So I think Wisconsin fans don't love what happened last year, but are excited. The last team that I will put in this bucket is going to be a controversial one because there is no world where you should be disappointed. With winning, with going 10 and 2 in the regular season and winning the Rose Bowl, going 11 and 2 overall with that Rose Bowl win. But I think that's exactly how I would describe Penn State fans because I think last year they, they felt like they really didn't. They, they beat everybody who was below their level and they didn't beat anybody who was at their level until Utah in the Rose Bowl. But they lost to Michigan and they lost to Ohio State and they finished 3rd in the division. And and look, the Ohio State game was competitive for a time, but it felt like the right team certainly won the game. The Michigan game was not competitive. The Michigan State game or the Michigan game rather was an absolute butt kicking, 41 to 17, and it felt like Penn State just was not there with those top two teams in the league, that Sean Clifford clearly was far behind C.J. Stroud, that there was something missing for Penn State. But they had a very successful year, and now they are handing the reins over at the quarterback position to Drew Aller, the guy who has been hyped up, who is uh, the guy that Penn State fans, I think, think a lot of Penn State fans would have probably liked to see last year over Sean Clifford. Clifford because it is, it seems like he can reach a higher level than Clifford ever did. And that's why I put Penn State in this category. I think they are disappointed, not with winning 10 games, not with winning the Rose Bowl, not with going to a Rose Bowl, but they are disappointed with the results last year because they fell short once again of competing with the top of this league. They are excited for the future because this team is stocked with talent. It has a they have a great defense uh they landed a huge transfer in dante Cephis, uh, a receiver from the Mac who is going to come in and, and be a key piece for them uh they they finished look they finished last year number six in the s p plus rankings overall, and now they have the quarterback that they think can probably take them to the next level, so I will put them in that disappointed but excited for the future for very different reasons than Nebraska and Wisconsin. This next category sad but downtrodden, and I'm really not going to talk too much about this because it's kind of self-explanatory. And I have Rutgers, Indiana, and Northwestern here. These are teams that did not perform well last year. Indiana and Rutgers, 4-8. and eight. Northwestern, 1-11. and 11. Did not win a game in the United States. Their one win was that opening game of the year in Ireland against Nebraska. And uh for these programs, I mean, it's 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 been a trend. Indiana, they looked like they were turning a corner a couple years ago. They looked like they were gonna be a team that, you know, was gonna be competitive in in the Big Ten, at least could be win six, seven games, maybe nine on a good year. Well, in 2021, they went two and ten. This past year, 2022, they go four and eight, and things have not looked good for Indiana. Greg Schiano, Rutgers has played in a bowl game since he returned, uh, but Rutgers and Greg Schiano, they have not won six games in a season since he returned to Rutgers. They played in the Gator Bowl. F5 and 7 in 2021, but they haven't won six games and it's just they're kind of treading water there. So, sad but downtrodden. And then Northwestern, I mean, look, Northwestern is a program where it felt like every other year Pat Fitzgerald just got them in a place where they were able to compete in the Big Tw- Big 10 West and you really weren't sure why but they did it and now over the past two seasons they have gone a combined four and 20 and they're looking for a lot of answers there so these three teams sad and downtrodden after their 2020 now you'll notice i have not talked about a ton of teams yet i've talked about eight teams i talked about just eight teams that's half or that's just over half the league The other six teams, I would all put in this same bucket. And this is the anxious bucket. And there is so much anxiety in the Big Ten conference right now. And for a variety of reasons. Because when I read this list, you'll be like, these teams don't have anything to do with one another. And you're right, they don't. Other than the fact that they are all extraordinarily anxious at this moment for a variety of different reasons. And look, there's a lot to be anxious about if you're a Big Ten football fan. The Big Ten as a conference has only won three college football playoff games since the college football playoff has come into existence. Two of them were by Ohio State in the inaugural year when Ohio State won the national championship. And one was in the 2020 season or following the 2020 season. I believe the game was actually in 2021 by Ohio State. So there have been three wins ever in the college ball playoff, and all of them are by Ohio State. And now Ohio State, the first team on this list, Ohio State is anxious as can be. They've lost to Michigan two years in a row. They lose C.J. Stroud. And I think, strangely enough, that loss to Georgia actually made them a little less anxious about this whole situation because it was clear they were right there. They were as talented as Georgia on that day. They were equal to Georgia, and they could have very well have won that game. Uh, But I think in some ways that actually lessened the anxiety of the Ohio State fan base because it was clear, okay, we are on the same tier as Georgia. Still, though, there's a lot of anxiety in Columbus. A lot of anxiety in Columbus. They've lost to Michigan two years in a row. They haven't won the Big Ten two years in a row. And they frankly missed out on a chance at a national championship last year. So there's a lot of anxiety in Columbus. Ann Arbor is another place with anxiety. There shouldn't be anxiety. Why should there be anxiety? They finally, finally have beaten Ohio State two years in a row. They've won the Big Ten two years in a row. They've gone to the college ball playoff two years in a row. But it's what happens after the Big Ten season. If Ohio State, if, they, if that season had ended for Michigan with that Ohio State game, they would be in the satisfied and looking for more category. I would create a whole new category for them because they would be feeling good. But what happened after the Ohio State game is they lost to the TCU in a game that they really, not to take anything away from TCU, because I love that TCU team, but Michigan did not look Like they were ready for what TCU had to offer in that game. Michigan looked, frankly, like they overlooked TCU in that game. And I think if you gave truth serum to some folks around that program, I think they would tell you they expected to roll run over TCU. And when they couldn't, they weren't able to play with their left hand. They didn't, they weren't able to go to their left. They didn't have something else in the bag to go to and say, like, okay we can't win this way, what else do we got? You started to see it a little bit uh, in that game with J.J. McCarthy and using his legs, but it was too little too late. Uh, So they lose that game. They could have been the first team other than Ohio State to win a college football playoff game from the Big Ten. And then the annual Jim Harbaugh flirtation starts with the NFL. And it just creates this whole feeling of uncertainty around the Michigan program. And like, All we should have been talking about with Michigan was the fact that they had beaten Ohio State two years in a row. They had won the Big Ten two years in a row, and they had a chance for more in 2023. But instead, we spent so much of the offseason talking about, will Jim Harbaugh stay or go? Will he go back to the NFL? Does he want to still be at Michigan? And it just takes away and causes this anxiety among the fan base. Then you also have the fact that Matt Weiss, Michigan's co-offensive coordinator, was fired this offseason for non-football reasons. Non-football reasons. And it's still pretty unclear to me as I read some of these things, like what exactly happened. Um, The term that keeps popping up in these articles when you read about what happened with Matt Weiss was inappropriately accessed computer accounts. I, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I don't want to speculate on what that means. But what I do know it means is there was more unrest and more turnover on that coaching staff where you now have your your co-offensive coordinator who was fired. And what should have been an offseason, again, where we are celebrating Michigan and we are talking about how – how they have become the top dog in the Big Ten, which they have, they should be the favorite this season. They need to be the favorite until Ohio State proves they can beat them. Instead, we're talking about what happened when that was. Will Jim Harbaugh stay or go? And why couldn't they beat TCU? So I think there's more anxiety than you think there is among the Michigan fan base, at least the part of the Michigan fan base that wants to win national championships and wants to consistently beat Ohio State on a year-in and year-out basis. Then you have in-state rival Michigan State. Two, a couple years ago, Michigan State, the bell of the ball. The absolute bell of the ball. You had Kenneth Walker running through the Big Ten. You had Mel Tucker looking like a transfer portal genius. They go 11-2. and they win the Peach Bowl, then last year they come back to earth. They go five and seven. Mel Tucker has this huge con, this huge contract, and I think Michigan State fans see what happened with Michigan. You can't forget the the fight that happened at uh, against Michigan, that brawl in the Michigan Michigan State game, and I think Michigan State fans got to feel like, okay, they're behind Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State now. That's not what they signed up for, necessarily. Purdue, a team that, again, should be completely satisfied. I mean, they had Aiden O'Connell. They went to uh, the Big Ten Championship game. They had a great year by Purdue standards. But Jeff Brom left, head coach Jeff Brom left. He goes home to Louisville. And they hire Ryan Walter, so I think there's reason to be excited. But it never feels good when your head coach says, I want to go somewhere else, no matter what the reason is, no matter if it is home or not. Uh, I think Purdue felt like they were building something there, Purdue fans did, and it's disappointing to lose Jeff Brom, and there's some anxiety about what's going to happen next. I, Ryan Walters, look, was a great defensive coordinator at Illinois, did a great job at Illinois, but they were building something there, and now they got to start over, so I think there's anxiety there. Then you have Minnesota. I think Minnesota was in a position last year where they felt like they should have won the Big Ten West. They had a fantastic defense. They had a fantastic running back in Mo Ibrahim. They had an experienced quarterback in Tanner Morgan, and they couldn't quite get it done. Minnesota, another one of these teams in the Big Ten with a fantastic defense fifth overall in Bill Connolly's SP plus defensive rankings, fifth nationally, but they finished 84th in offense. Um, and I think there's some concern there uh, among Minnesota fans where it's like, okay, if we couldn't do it last year, when are we ever going to do it? And I think PJ Fleck has built a really nice, consistent program there, but I understand why fans are anxious when – They were right there, and you know, they've had two really good years where they go eight and four, they win a bowl game both years, but the bowl games they win, the guaranteed rate bowl, a game that kicks off usually after 10 PM East Coast time out in Phoenix, and the pinstripe bowl. And look, Minnesota, I think Minnesota, I think that it's very solid for Minnesota to have back to back nine and four seasons. I think if you just put that out on paper, I think most Minnesota fans would take it. But you look at how that season went last year, and it looked like Minnesota could accomplish more. It looked like they could. They started out 4-0, and and then they lose three in a row. Start out 4-0, and and then lose the next three, all to conference foes. They rebound. They win the next three. They're sitting there at 7-3. They have a chance. They have a chance to go to that Big Ten championship game still. They lose to Iowa 13-10 in a rivalry game. And so I think it's, it's concerning for Minnesota fans, given all they had, given how good that defense was, that they couldn't get over the hump and they couldn't win the division. The last team, I think, is the king of anxiety in this conference right now. That's the Iowa talk, Hawkeyes. You talk about a team that had a fantastic defense, but the offense couldn't help them at all. Iowa was the best defense in the country last year, according to Bill Connolly's SP+. They were the number 118 offense. This is a team that gave up just 13.3 points per game but only scored 17.7. If Iowa could have just put together a, let's call it a top 50 offense. This is a team that would have won the Big Ten West and probably would have won 10 games and gone to a New Year's Six Bowl game. They had the best defense in the country, and they couldn't do it. And now you have an offseason where offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz The son of head coach Kirk Ferentz has a clause put into his contract where they have to score 25 points per game and win seven games or else he will be terminated. They got to score 25 points per game. When have you ever seen that in a contract? When has that ever happened where you see in a contract if this team doesn't score this many points or win this many or win this many games, a contract will expire. Never, I can't ever remember seeing it, or at least it not being, at least it wasn't made public. And you know, at, at these public schools, you can get you can get the contracts. So I, I, to me, I think if it had happened, we would have known about it. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Brian Ferentz. They got to score twenty five points per game or his contract will terminate on June 30th, 2024. Iowa must also win at least seven games, which can include a bowl game. And that'll happen because Iowa pretty much always wins seven games, but they gotta score some points. The mandate is clear. There is so much anxiety about the defense that Iowa is wasting, and the fact that it's Kirk Ferentz's son, and the questions about whether Ferentz will make a move Make a change if it's not working with his son, Brian. And this was now put in his contract. Brian reports directly to the athletic director and not to his dad, Kirk. Um, There's just so much anxiety here around this offense, around this situation, around what Iowa is wasting by the fact that they cannot score. But they do have Cade McNamara coming in at quarterback. They have Cade McNamara, a guy who led Michigan two years ago, to a Big Ten championship, who is now going to be their quarterback. And there is some hope there, but there is oh so much anxiety around this Iowa program and particularly its offense. So that's the Big Ten in 2022 for you. I want to get you out of here with three burning questions about the Big Ten as we head in To this 2023 season. And of course, this summer, we will be diving much deeper into this as we do our Big Ten preview and all of our conference previews. But my three burning questions can Penn State turn the East into a three team race? I think it's possible. They have a ton of talent there. I think it all is going to depend on if Drew Aller lives up to the hype. Who will play quarterback for the Ohio State Buckeyes? Is it Devin Brown? Is it McCord? Kyle McCord? Both highly rated guys. But can they really effectively replace C.J. Stroud? This is a guy who may be the number one pick in the draft. Who will play quarterback, and how effectively can they replace him? And then my last burning question is the one that we've talked a lot about already just a few seconds ago. Can Iowa's offense become even a top half-of-the-country offense? Because if so, if they can do that under Brian Ferentz and Cade McNamara, then they have a very good chance to be a 9-10 win team. And we'll see if it happens because you combine a even semi-competent offense with a defense like Iowa puts out on a year-in, year-out basis, and you're looking at a very, very scary team who can beat anybody on any given day. Those are my burning questions about the Big Ten as we head into 2023. I'll be back with you next week to talk more about basketball news, any other college sports related news that comes up and then continue our conference recap series where we look back at the year that was and look a little bit ahead to the 2023 college football season. Enjoy the week everybody and until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold.